Church, it is so good to see all of you this morning. Um, if you're here and a guest with a family um, of those who are celebrating um, the child dedication, thank you for being here with us. What, what a great day. Uh, my name is Stuart McCray. I have the great joy of being on the staff and serving as one of the pastors here. And, and I have uh, the great joy of bringing you God's word this morning. On January 13th, 1984, President Ronald Reagan issued a presidential proclamation designating Sunday, January 2nd as National Sanctity of Human Life Day, noting that it was the 11th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Reagan would then go on to issue that proclamation every year after, designating Sanctity of Human Life Day the closest Sunday to, uh, to that of the original January 22nd date. Tomorrow marks the 45th anniversary of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision on the life or death issue of abortion. Much has happened since then, but the debate over abortion continues in our culture. This month, as a church, we've been looking at various topics that we want to be intentional about as we start the new year. And we started this off actually the, the last Sunday in December and being intentional in our consideration of how we think about and how we participate in prayer. And then we considered uh, how we can be intentional in regards to grace-based giving. And last week, we heard from God's word that we're called to be intentional in our regard of people who are ethnically different from ourselves, seeing them as God does through Christ. And I, I, I highly encourage you, if you have not been able to listen to that message, to please go to our website and, uh, and do that. This morning, we want to take some time and be intentional and hear what God has to say about the sanctity of human life. The Bible makes it clear that all persons have intrinsic value, worth, and dignity. And so in submission to God's word, we also see that all of human life is worthy of value, worth, and dignity. But we set aside this particular Sunday to be intentional in considering specifically the sanctity of human life in the womb. That being said, being for the sanctity of human life cannot mean just pro-delivery, as it were. Being for the sanctity of human life, according to the Bible, means being pro for all of human life. All life, because every human life has value, worth, and dignity, because God has created all human life in his image for his glory. So this sermon is going to focus in on the value of human life in the womb, but, but let's make clear again, all of human life is worthy of dignity. Elderly persons are worthy of dignity. Those with downs or special needs are worthy of dignity. Those who are in hospice are worthy of dignity. All peoples, 
from every ethnicity are worthy of dignity. All peoples, no matter their their capacities or conditions, no matter their social status, economic position, or political party, are worthy of dignity. The sanctity of human life applies to all human life, from the womb to the tomb. Now, before we get into our text this morning, Doug and I thought that there's at least two things that should be said from the start. The numbers tell us that in a group this size, there is a strong chance that there is somebody here who has either had an abortion or who has helped to aid in someone having an abortion in some shape or fashion. And if that's you, this is probably uniquely a difficult topic to hear about. But if that's you, and you're struggling with guilt or shame, I want to remind you that there is full forgiveness at the cross of Christ. Jesus would invite you to come and lay your burdens and your sins down at the cross, trusting in the full forgiveness that he offers. Jesus is eager and willing to forgive you because he's paid for your sin already in full at the cross. Second, when we talk about the sanctity of human life, and certainly as it pertains to abortion, often we can run straight to thinking about this topic as a political issue. Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, and and, and there's something legit to that as this topic is in the political sphere. But abortion is not first political. Abortion in the topic of the sanctity of human life is first theological. From the very beginning, the sanctity of human life, from the womb to the tomb, has been about God. When we say that we believe in the sanctity of human life, we mean every human life Every human being has intrinsic value, worth, and dignity because God himself has bestowed that upon each one of them. More on that later. With that, please turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, you open up in the middle of your Bible, you'll find the Psalms. Psalm 8, as you are turning there, Let me say that I'm indebted to uh, John Piper's sermons on this topic. Um, I'd encourage you to go explore his free resources, um, and in particular, um, to some direction on this psalm. Psalm 8, follow along with me as I read the text. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, the still, the enemy, and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, 
You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, the Psalms are poetry, and as such, they are, they are designed intentionally. I love poetry. I'm, I'm continuing to grow more and more of my love for poetry, but I know that that is not a usual thing. Normally, a lot of us don't traffic in poetry, but there is a large part of the Bible that is poetic literature, and poetry is beautiful. It, it, is, it is aesthetic in nature, and it attempts through the way it communicates its theology in the Bible to capture and elicit our, our minds, our affections, our emotions with, with who God is and what he does for his people. And I'm really excited to be able to go through this psalm with you. These psalms are designed intentionally, and they have a structure and if we understand the structure, it helps us to have insight into understanding and interpreting a given psalm. So too with this psalm. This psalm is a hymn of praise. And these type of songs, uh, worship songs typically celebrate God as creator and or as redeemer. And since this psalm is a hymn, it's music, we can actually consider it as we would any song, just like the ones that we are singing this morning. We should expect to find a chorus and some verses, right, or some stanzas. And that's what we find here within this psalm, this hymn of praise. You'll notice in your notes, if you take out your sermons, if you haven't looked at them yet, I provided you a, a structure of this psalm. I hope that'll help us as we navigate through this. This isn't just being a geek. We're not just nerding out here. God, the sovereign creator of the universe, who is intentional with all things, is intentional here as well. And just a, a brief moment of our consideration of the intentionality of the structure of the psalm will unfold what this psalm is trying to convey to us. So here we go. So just like we'd expect in any song, we're going to find a chorus and we're going to find some stanzas. And we find that here in this one too. You'll notice that the, the chorus in the structure I provided you, the chorus is in verse 1, the first line of verse 1, the first sentence of verse 1, or 1a, as I have it in your structure, and then verse 9. That's the chorus. And then you'll notice there's two stanzas. The first stanza is the second line of verse 1, or 1b, as I have it in your structure, through verse 2. And then the second stanza is verse 3 through 8. I hope that the, uh, the note I provided you in, in your handout helps. Now, again, just like we'd expect in any song, the chorus provides the main overarching theme or emphasis of the hymn. And so the theme of this particular hymn of praise is proclaiming the awesome majesty of God. And then as we'd expect... The stanzas or, or verses of the song would help to affirm that theme and then also expound upon that theme, laying it open so that we might better understand it. And that's what happens with this hymn as well. If the main theme is proclaiming the awesome majesty of God, then the two stanzas of this hymn, of this hymn 
will add to that by claiming that God's praiseworthy majesty is displayed here on earth through his supreme creation, human beings. Now, what we're going to see here in the stanzas is, is a pattern. The first line of each stanza is going to reaffirm that theme, and then the preceding lines of those stanzas will then help to expound that theme. This is going to make more sense as we go. Trust me, there's payoff in doing this. But maybe you're asking, why even look at Psalm 8 for a sanctity of human life sermon? Psalm 8 makes clear that there is a connection with how we view and handle this topic of the sanctity of human life and how we view and worship God. You see, Psalm 8 is, is, is going to help us better understand this category, the sanctity of human life, but Psalm 8 is going to help us to get a, a bigger view of God, and, and we need a bigger view of God as, as he pertains and relates to this category of the sanctity of human life. So I'm just so excited to be able to go through this psalm with you. We're going to get a great big view of our awesome God. Psalm 8 is a hymn of praise proclaiming the awesome majesty of God. And as the hymn unfolds, we see that God's majesty is displayed here on earth through a supreme creation, human beings. So we're going to approach this, this hymn just uh, as you would expect. We're going to talk about the course, then we'll talk about both stanzas, and then we're going to close. And we're going to, we're going to consider how we might apply this hymn to our lives. So follow along with me as I reread the chorus found in verses 1a and 9. I'm, I'm just going to do it from 1a since they're the same. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If your translation is like the ESV, which is what I used in, in the notes there, then you'll notice that, that the first part of verse 1 has two, two lords there. There's one that's in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and then there's another one that's capital L, lowercase o-r-d. This was not a mistake. Someone did not fat finger this. This was intentional. The first Lord is God's covenant name, Yahweh. And as you might recall, God introduced himself to Moses in the burning bushes, I am who I am, or Yahweh. Literally, this word means to be, and it captures a range of descriptions about who God is, that God is self-existent, that God is the creator and sustainer of all things, that God is unchanging in his being and character, right? He's the, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then finally, that God is eternal in his existence, the name of Yahweh is associated with covenant faithfulness. God is the faithful one. He is faithful to all of his covenant promises. God's name is superior to all other names, for he is the only true God. The second Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, is the name and title Adonai. Adonai reflects God's sovereign, kingly rule. And so if we were to say this first part literally, we would say, O Yahweh, 
our Adonai. O Yahweh, our, our sovereign king. You see, God has uniquely revealed himself to his people as the covenant-making, covenant-keeping Lord, as the sovereign creator of the whole universe and everything in it. And that revelation is to cause his people, whom he has claimed as his own, to worship him in their hearts and out of their mouths, to worship him for who he is and what he has done for them. O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Majestic is getting at might or splendor or glory. And the word name in the scriptures is getting at the idea of one's nature or reputation. The, the, the chorus of this hymn is simple and yet profound. It, it's a proclamation of all that there is, there is no one in all the earth whose, whose nature is as majestic as the Lord's. This hymn is a hymn of praise, and the theme of this chorus, and thus the overriding theme of this hymn is praise the majesty of God. And as we're going to see in the two stanzas of this hymn that are sandwiched between the chorus, one of the primary ways that God displays his praiseworthy majesty here on earth is through human beings. Follow along with me as I reread the first stanza of this hymn found in verses 1b through 2. You have set your glory above the heavens. And out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. The point of this first stanza of this hymn is praise the majesty of God, for he establishes strength through babies to silence his enemies. Now, the chorus set out the theme of this hymn, and that is praise the majesty of God. And as I mentioned earlier when we were talking about the structure, that each one of these stanzas is going to start off by reaffirming that theme. Look at the structure of the psalm in your notes. The first line of stanza one says, you have set your glory above the heavens. You, you see it? There it is. David is pointing us back to the main theme by drawing our attention to God's glory, his majesty, his splendor, so that we will praise God. This text says that God's glory is above the heavens, but we also know that the, the heavens themselves declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. That the heavens are, are a tapestry covered with evidences of God's majesty. What's more, the Bible says that the heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain God. 
One commentator says, God does not belong to the category of space, for he cannot be contained. Yet a paradox intervenes unexpectedly. The power of Yahweh, an essential aspect of his majesty, is confirmed by the sounds that come out of the mouths of babies and infants. Psalm 8-2 is odd at first. When we were first reading that, uh, if you're like me, you you read verse 2 and you said, I don't know if that fits. If it does, how? Well, we know one thing. This line in this stanza is here to expound upon the hymn's main theme. That's what we understand about the structure. So that's our guiding uh, principle for interpreting this odd verse. It is here to expound upon the hymn's main theme of praising the majesty of God. And yet the question is, is how does it do that? Well, this verse might sound familiar as the New Testament picks it up in Matthew 21, 16. And there's a strong clue in the Matthew reference that helps us to, to understand how verse 2 builds into and expounds upon the hymn's main theme. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. Uh, I'm also going to have Matthew 21, 16 on the screen uh, when we get there in just, in just a moment. So, so quick context. Matthew 21 is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is what we call Palm Sunday. So he's coming in on a donkey, and there are folks that are covering uh, the road with cloaks. There are other folks who are waving palm branches, and seemingly everyone is shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And, and, and then upon Jesus' entry... He goes to the temple, he cleanses it, and then he starts to heal the blind and the lame. Then, starting with verse 15, we read, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Verse 16 And they said to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? And then he quotes Psalm 8-2. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Now that's interesting because that's not an exact quote, is it? Psalm 8-2 says you have established strength. And Jesus quotes it as, you have prepared praise. Spoiler alert, alert, Jesus is not wrong. Why? And what is it that Jesus says helps us to understand Psalm 8-2? Well, we could answer the question by saying that Jesus is God, this is his word, and therefore he's right. We would be right in saying that. But there's something more substantive here than simply that, and it is this. The strength that God establishes that silences his enemies is through the praise that comes through the mouths of babies and infants. The strength that God establishes 
that silences his enemies is through the praise that comes through the mouths of babies and infants. This is why Jesus quotes this verse as a rebuke to the authorities, i.e. God's enemies, who wanted him to quiet the children who were shouting his praise when he entered Jerusalem. Listen to the types of things that God's enemies say. They mock. They speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, in sin, God's people turned to them and drank in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? One commentator eloquently says, God obtains the victory over his rebellious subjects by means of babies. Through their conscious or unconscious praise of his glory, as their praise manifests the splendor of his powerful work in creation. And in that praise, God puts to shame the arrogance of the deniers of his being and perfections. <laughs> the, the, the sounds goo-goo-ga-ga that come out of an infant's mouth is Praise to God's matchless majesty because it gives evidence that he is the creator and sustainer of all things. Do you see it? God's majesty is displayed here on earth through his supreme creation, human beings. This is the way it works, isn't it? Throughout the testimony of Scripture, we see that God is pleased to use the weak to shame the strong. And why? So that God will receive the praise. That's stanza one. Praise the majesty of God, for he establishes strength through the mouths of babies, through the weakest of humans whom he has created to shame the strong, to silence his enemies. Let's look now at stanza two. Follow along with me as I reread stanza two of this hymn found in verses three through eight. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. All right, now remember, when we were talking about the structure, I had said that each stanza, the first line of each stanza, was going to reaffirm the main theme of this hymn. 
So look at the structure of the psalm in your notes. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, there it is. David is once again pointing us back to the main theme by having us consider God's glory in power in his finger work when he put the moon and the stars in place so as to cause us to praise the majesty of God. Here's the scene. Here's the scene in verse 3. It's, it's nighttime. It's dark. And David is in the middle of a, of a vast field. There, there, there's no light pollution. The only chance that we would have to even have a glimmer of this type of view would be to go to the country, and even that, even that would not be the same. And, and looking up into the night sky, David can see as far as he can see stars, billions of them, and the moon. And maybe in this clear sky, even Venus. And it just looks like it goes on and on and on. Charles Spurgeon eloquently says, The heavens show us what an insignificant being. Indeed, what a mere atom man is appears amidst the immensity of creation. Though he is the object of father to the care and mercy of the Most High, yet he is but a grain of sand when compared to the whole earth. And what is the whole of this globe on which we dwell compared to the solar system, which contains a mass of matter 10,000 times greater? And I'll add our solar system in compared to our galaxy? What is our galaxy in comparison to the whole universe? And who, who are we? And in response to being overwhelmed by God's glory and majesty in the starry sky above and thus being confronted with his insignificant smallness. David asks in verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him? What, what, who is the son of man that you care for him? And then starting in verse 5, David answers his own question based on the truths that he already knows. Follow along with me. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. It's widely debated whether or not heavenly beings should be that, or, or angels, or whether it should be, should be God. The Hebrew makes it difficult to determine. That being said, the point, or the main principle, 
remains the same. And it is this. Man, we are not divine. We were made. We were created. And as such, is in a humble position. God is the creator of every human person. And David knew that he was not some cosmic accident, but was made personally by God. Listen to David's own words in Psalm 139. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. See, David knew that from conception in the womb that God was intimately involved in creating him. David also knew that he was created in the image of God to reflect God's glory. And so he says, you have crowned him with glory and honor. And therefore, to be like God in having and exercising dominion. So he says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. This second stanza is what's called a poetic reflection. And it's a poetic reflection of Genesis 1, 26 through 27. There we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Do you see all the parallels between our passage and then Genesis 1, 26 and 27? You see, David was reminding himself through song of the truths he knew about how God personally created man in his image for his glory to serve as vice regents under his authority. R.C. Sproul well said, the stamp of the image and likeness of God connects God and mankind uniquely. Though there is no biblical warrant for seeing man as little gods, there is high dignity associated with this unique relationship to the creator. Man, all humans, every person, was created in the image of God. And this is what sets man apart from every other creature. You see, although man was created in a humble position, God, God crowned him with glory and honor and dignity and worth and gave him God-like dominion over all other creatures. We derive that all human beings have value, worth, and dignity because the 
Bible says that human beings are created in the image of God. And this isn't something that was, that was, that was purely uh, before the fall, and then that was not the case after the fall. Listen to Genesis 5.1. So this is after the fall. We read, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And then all the way in the New Testament, in James we read, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Since the beginning with Adam, and then with every human being after, God has created human beings in his image. This is how we can say that we believe in the sanctity of all human life. Every person, from conception in the womb all the way to the tomb, every person is made in the image of God and considered sacred to holy God. The dignity and sanctity of human life is not something that can be lost earned or achieved. The dignity of human beings is sourced in God graciously bestowing on all human beings that he personally creates the image of God. Human beings as image bearers were created to reflect God's glory. And as we do, he is praised. But sin distorts and detracts from this reflection. None of us reflect perfectly. And there's a reason why the New Testament picks, picks, picks up much of Psalm 8 and applies it to Jesus. Jesus is the perfect representation of the humanity described in this psalm. Jesus was perfect, without sin. And so he perfectly reflected God's glory in all that he did, in all that he thought. And now, exalted in heaven, the Father has put all things under Jesus' feet. The stanza is calling us to praise the majesty of God, for he entrusts dominion over his creation to human beings who were created in his image. Psalm 8 is a hymn of praise. Proclaiming the awesome majesty of God. And as the hymn has unfolded, we've seen that God's praiseworthy majesty is displayed here on earth through his supreme creation, human beings. Therefore, the implication that flows out from this truth is that one cannot worship the majesty of God while also unjustly destroying his supreme creation. 
One cannot worship the majesty of God while also unjustly destroying his supreme creation. John Piper draws this out even more, this, this basic implication when he says, one cannot starve the aged human and glorify the majesty of God. One cannot lynch the black human and glorify the majesty of God. One cannot treat human pregnancy like a disease and glorify the majesty of God. One cannot treat the mixing of human ethnicities like a defect and glorify the majesty of God. One cannot dismember the unborn human and glorify the majesty of God. Any degradation to human life is not simply an offense to humanity. Let me be specific here. God's word is clear that abortion isn't merely the destruction of a human life or tissue, and it's an offense to the creator of that life. And as we destroy God's supreme creation through abortion, we're also sinning directly against God and the very God who sovereignly, creatively, and intimately created that human being in his image for his glory. The sanctity of, of all human life is about God. And the implication of the truths contained in this hymn of praise is that abortion is anti-worship. But let's be clear. The degradation of any human life is anti-worship of God. God's majesty, God's praiseworthy majesty is displayed here on earth through his supreme creation, human beings. Therefore, one cannot worship the majesty of God while unjustly destroying his supreme creation. How do we think about these things? How do we, how do we apply these things? I want to encourage and exhort. I want to encourage and exhort. Grace Bible Church, there is much to encourage you about in regard with your love for the sanctity of all human life. Be encouraged. The way you love, care for, and express worth in this church for all persons created in the image of God is encouraging. It's motivating. It's inspiring. I think a, a major way that you do that, and I think that it's evident to anybody who has even just come through our doors, is the way that you indiscriminately welcome all persons, no matter their background or their ethnicity. And in so welcoming them, you are expressing to them their value, their worth, and their dignity that was given to them by God. Be encouraged. 
I want to highlight one way that you do this that is of personal impact to me, one way that I can encourage you about the way that you express that people, all persons, have value, worth, and dignity because they're created in the image of God. Church, Lord and I, we are, we are grateful to God for the ways that you express to our son Owen his value, his worth, and his dignity. A lot of you know, and some of you may not, our son Owen has some significant developmental delays. <laughs> we, are, we are so thankful and grateful for the way that you care for him, engage with him, love on him, accept him. And in so doing, you are expressing to him his value, his worth, and his dignity. We're grateful to God for you. Church, I'm, I'm so encouraged by your love and support and participation in adoption. We have many families in this church that, that have adopted, who have supported adoptions, who have come around people who are adopting and praying for them and caring for them. Church, your participation and support of adoption is expressing your yes and amen to the sanctity of human life. Church, we support local ministries like CareNet and Assist Pregnancy Center. We have home groups that go and support local shelters. We eagerly teach for the next generation to have a, a God-centered perspective on the sanctity of all human life. Church, our love and support of the family, whether that's a, a family with both a dad and a mom or a family of a single parent and, and a child or children, your, your support of the family is, is giving evidence to a watching world the value and dignity and worth of people created in the image of God. Church, there is much to be encouraged about Now, let me express some, some exhortation. Let me exhort you in the ways that you could, you could press forward in expressing, celebrating, and promoting life, and thus praising the majesty of God. Maybe it's you getting involved in local ministries that support and promote life. Maybe it's you getting engaged with local retirement homes. Maybe it's you getting engaged with local shelters. Maybe it's that you, you would come alongside families that are here who are struggling and overwhelmed and you give them support and encouragement. Maybe it is through political action. There are all sorts of life issues, justice issues. This is not just about abortion. This is about life and the sanctity of all human life. Finally, church, pray. Pray for our country's leaders that they would seek God's will and heart in these matters. 
Pray that as a church, we would not waver from affirming and celebrating the sanctity of all human life. Pray that God would pour out his grace and mercy on us. Pray that he would bring godly conviction. And might I suggest most of all, pray that the gospel would still go forth. The greatest expression for the sanctity of human life that all persons have value, worth, and dignity is for the gospel to go forth and souls to be saved so that those who were created in the image of God and whose image was then broken would be restored to new life. Pray that the gospel would go forth. Psalm 8 is a hymn of praise, proclaiming the awesome majesty of God. And as this hymn has unfolded, we've seen that God's majesty is displayed here on earth through his supreme creation, human beings. Let's, let's pray and then let's praise the majesty of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for your word, for without it, Father, we would not know this truth and a great many truths. Father, I pray that you would make us not be simply listeners of your word, but also doers of your word. Father, that you would give us great conviction and boldness from the truths that we've heard today about the sanctity of all human life. that it be something that we are to be praising the majesty of God. Will we be emboldened from that truth to go and, and be participants in, in spreading that news that all persons everywhere have value, have worth, have dignity because all persons have been created in your image for your glory. Father, help us. We can't do these things on our own. We need your help to do these things, to believe these things, to think these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.